Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We talk a lot about how technology intersects with everyday life, and the next story is very interesting. It's about Amazon's facial recognition technology and how it's helping to supercharge local police. The Washington County Sheriff's Office was the first law enforcement agency in the country to use Amazon's artificial intelligence tool called Recognition with a K, R-E-K. With this new tool, local officers can now use pictures from security cams, smartphones, even pictures from your social media to match that to mugshots that they have in their police databases, and it helps them narrow down a suspect's identity. We spoke to Drew Harwell. He's the algorithms reporter for the Washington Post for how this facial recognition technology is changing the game for local police. Just a quick story, the way you started your article, it's great. There was a, in Oregon, there were workers at an Ace Hardware that reported a woman had walked out of the store with a tank of welding gas worth $11.99, $12. From there, the Washington County Sheriff's detective working that case went to work with this Amazon recognition tool. And they were able to, from security cameras, identify her face. They got a license plate. Three months later, they were able to find her car and they nabbed her. It worked in this case, $12 worth. It wasn't a bigger crime or anything. But this is how supercharged these local law enforcement agencies are getting by using these facial recognition technology. Tell us a little bit more about this whole concept. That's an example, too, that sort of gets at one of the bigger themes of facial recognition, which is that it allows police to prosecute crimes they otherwise would have totally ignored. Right. This is a case where $12, they had the surveillance video. The deputy said, you know, in the past, we would have looked at that video. If, if we recognized her, we may have gone out to find her. But if not, we would have just let it go because it's, it's 12 bucks. But this technology has helped them narrow down onto somebody and find somebody in a way that really sort of changed their behavior and, and influenced the deputies to prosecute somebody for a pretty low level crime. So from the deputy side, they feel like this is a a really powerful tool. You know, we can we can take all of these videos and photos that we're getting already and run this through a system and quickly identify somebody in a way that really helps us save time and, you know, hopefully helps us zone in on the right person more quickly and more accurately. But on the flip side, and, you know, from the lawyers and the civil liberties advocates and, and some of the tech experts, too, they say, hold on here, we're getting to this really powerful technology that the deputies are able to use pretty much whenever they want. It's shifting the balance of power to allowing these deputies to find people in a way that they've never really been able to before. And with facial recognition, it's a way for the police to identify pretty much anyone, pretty much anywhere, without their consent and without their knowledge. It's like the fingerprints on steroids. And it's changing the picture of law enforcement and and it's being pitched to police all over the country. I like the way you put that, a fingerprint on steroids. Describe to us what they can run on this facial recognition technology, because they can use grainy security footage. They can go on somebody's Facebook and find a picture. They can use pretty much anything. And then they match that across a bunch of mugshots and, and other images that they have available to them. Whatever photo or video 
they have, they can run through the system. So, you know, in a lot of cases, they would take in-store surveillance footage, or they would take footage from somebody had a security camera outside of their home or in their doorbell, like one of those ring doorbells. They could use that footage. But the deputies were also pulling photos from social media, like Facebook profiles. They would take their smartphones and capture photos from witnesses' smartphones. Pretty much anywhere there would be an image of somebody's face, they could use that. And so the old way was that they would sort of share these photos over email or fax and see if anybody recognized them. But now they don't even have to go that far. They can just run their squad car, run this face scan. So they're using it a lot more often and identifying more and more people in this way. It's becoming something that is really sort of uh, shaping their behavior and shaping how their investigations work and how their pursuits of potential suspects work in a way that I don't think a lot of people may suspect. The Washington County Sheriff's Office began using this in late 2017. How often are they using this? How many searches are they running through this Amazon recognition technology? Last year, they ran more than a thousand searches a couple a day. More than 150 deputies were using it. And so some of those were sort of deputies in the field. Some of those were support sheriff's office officials back at headquarters. But it was something that like everybody had availability at using. And the deputies were really kind of excited about being able to use it, right? Because a lot of them have had castaway images that they never really knew what to do with. But that's what facial recognition is. It's changing a lot of stuff, not just policing, but I mean, this is how people unlock their phones. This is a big way that Facebook works. Facial recognition security is being used in schools and apartment complexes and businesses and retail settings. But, you know, these systems aren't perfect. There's these huge sort of accuracy issues. They look at people with different skin colors in different ways. So there's questions of bias. And, you know, when you're dealing with an imperfect system like this in a scenario that's about criminal justice and that involves people getting arrested and people having guns and people going to jail and any imperfection has a risk involved. And I think this is just one sheriff's office. This is just the first, but Amazon hopes there are many and there are many companies working on this technology. So this is something that down the road could be something in a lot of different communities. And all of these accuracy questions and privacy questions could snowball all around the country. The sheriff's office there allowed you and another journalist to spend a couple days in squad cars with the detectives and their offices to see how they use this technology in their daily caseloads. You were mentioning how they were happy that they had this new tool to work with, but how are they using it day to day? When they would get calls of a shoplifting or a theft or a violent crime or trespassing, they would talk to people and, and often they would get these photos or videos from either the people who reported the crime or witnesses or somebody around there. And they could just from their smartphone or from the computer in their squad car, they could upload that photo into this like internal website that they are able to access the recognition system from. And it's really just like a plug-in-play sort of thing. You upload the photo, there's like a little scanning animation, and out pops these five potential matches, whatever recognition thinks are the matches. And those matches are taken from this huge database of more than 300,000 photos from the jail mugshots over the last 18 years. The promise of that system was that anytime somebody has been in jail for the last two decades, if we see them 
them in one of these photos, it's going to instantly make that connection and we can go from there. The deputies feel like this is an accurate tool for us and they each had their stories of being able to quickly find the right bad guy, you know. And yet there's a couple concerns about that system. One is that, you know, when you're just looking at a specific group of people who were arrested before and you're dealing with an imperfect system, you know, you're more likely to find a match from that group and and maybe a false match and maybe end up having a, a false arrest just because this system depends on looking at resemblances that may not actually be accurate. So deputies would use it in office, out in the squad car, out on the street. And, you know, some people in the community, too, like they'd heard that the police were using facial recognition. So they were saying, hey, we have this, you know, in-store camera footage of somebody stealing, in one case, boots from a clothing store. Let's scan them. Like, let's figure out if we can figure who this person was. So, And, you know, that's a case where, again, beforehand, the deputies would have just moved along and figured this maybe wasn't worth the time. But in this case, it becomes an active law enforcement investigation with with all that entails. Let's talk about Amazon's role in this, because they still maintain that all these investigations are still 100 percent human led. So this is just a tool. You know, if they returns five matches of a possible suspect, you know, you have to do your due diligence and go through it. Did they design this recognition system with law enforcement in mind? Because I know that a lot of other agencies would want to get their hands on this kind of thing because it's very cheap for them to use. No, it really wasn't. Facial recognition is one of the like big schools of thought in AI right now. It's something that's been around in, in some ways for a long time, but we've just now gotten to an important sort of period where the hardware is cheap enough, the software is cheap enough, the cloud storage is cheap enough, and the algorithms are getting more refined that we're sort of coming to a point where it's it's more available and more accessible everywhere. So Amazon, like a lot of different companies, is just sort of putting together an image recognition system that a lot of different use cases could be applied to. And Amazon has talked about, well, you could use this to maybe find missing children. Maybe you find somebody on the, find some kid on the street and you're able to figure out, okay, this is somebody we've been looking for. There were sort of a lot of different scenarios. But in this case, the system was so easy to use and so sort of cheap that one of these sheriff's office employees started applying it to to law enforcement and started to kind of build it in a way that deputies could use it to scan potential suspects and could use it in this active sort of criminal investigation scenario. But this is something that a number of police forces across the country have used in in sort of a a limited way before where they're maybe looking for fraudulent IDs and the FBI has used facial recognition in, in some ways before as well. So this is something that deputies and cops have been talking about for a long time in this in their minds is the key to unlocking like one of the big struggles for them, which is finding the right people yeah. and identifying people on the fly. What's the future of this? There's no federal laws to govern the use of facial recognition right now, but I know a lot of places are working on legislation, work on this. We, you've talked about the privacy concerns. What are we going to expect for this tech in the future? What this shows is that there's no legal limit to applying this. There's no federal law. There's some sort of state proposals, but there's no real legal hurdle. There's a lower technical hurdle than there's ever been. And it's really sort of easy to apply this if you have a couple smart people and the interest. And there's really, you know, not that much of a financial struggle anymore, too. This is a couple hundred bucks, which is nothing in a public budget. So I think the real takeaway is that the next questions are going to be moral ones and philosophical ones. Do we want technology that is this powerful applied in a way that could be throwing the wrong people in jail? This is 
is going to be sort of the big debate in law enforcement and public justice over the next couple of years. Is this something where we do want this in every community police force across the country or, or do we want to take a step back here? So some people see this as like imminent, right? They see this yeah. is going to be the future of policing. This is a tool that everybody's going to be used. But I don't think it's totally set yet. And I think, you know, there is some debate on the legal ramifications. So I think that part remains to be seen. Drew Harwell, Algorithms reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A lot of fireworks in the political world this week as Attorney General Bill Barr testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday about special counsel Robert Mueller's report, and it got very tense. We found out that Mueller sent a letter to Bill Barr objecting to the characterization of his report's findings. Uh, We also found out that Bill Barr did not personally review all of the evidence in the report, and Democrats are calling on the attorney general to resign now. We spoke to Elena Train, White House reporter for Axios, and we started off by talking about that Mueller letter. This letter was sent in March and essentially criticizing the attorney general. And it said that the summary that he had issued, the four-page summary of the, of the report, failed to fully capture the context, nature, and substance of the special counsel's work and conclusions. Of course, the timing of this the night before Barr testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee was a huge deal. And of course, that took up a lot of space during that hearing. And Barr, of course, defended himself against it. But I do think, of course, the timing of it, a lot of Republicans question the timing of that. It shows how different Democrats and Republicans are looking at this. Mueller had said, I sent you an introduction with executive summaries for each volume of the report that I made, just made with redactions. He already kind of knew what was up with it. So he's saying, why didn't you release these executive summaries? It would have provided a lot more context than what you gave. And William Mm -hmm. Barr said multiple times that Mueller did not necessarily dispute the accuracy of what he said. It just kind of really just threw everybody for a loop. And he said, I gave you the materials. Why didn't you release that? A smart take I saw on this was Garrett Graff. He's a contributor to Wired, and he's one of the most well-sourced and intelligent people who's been reporting on the Russia investigation. He said that he's essentially read about almost every word that Robert Mueller has said publicly or published. And he said he's only ever seen a letter like the angry one that he sent to Barr once before. And it was criticizing Scotland for letting the Pan Am 103 bomber out of prison. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to look at, just the history of the way that Robert Mueller, as we've seen over the past several months of his investigation, there were no leaks. He, despite a lot of reports, and criticisms of his investigation and other things that people had tried to make sense of before his report was finished. They never really spoke to it. He never really came out publicly trying to correct the record. And yet a letter like this coming into the public sphere shows how he viewed that summary from Bill Barr. William Barr had already testified before Congress. He was there for another matter, but people pressed him on the Mueller report. And he said that he didn't really know how Mueller's team had felt about his four-page summary and what he did. Now that we have this letter, we know that's not necessarily true. And this is leading for a lot of Democrats to call for the attorney general to resign, basically saying he lied. I think Senator Mazzi Hirono was very forceful on that, telling him repeatedly that he lied about this whole situation. A lot of Democrats are accusing him of perjuring himself in that previous testimony, especially given the timing, because the letter that Robert Mueller had written was sent in March. Barr testified to Congress in early April. And so 
yeah, a lot of people are now accusing him of perjuring himself and asking for him to resign. And we've seen several key Democrats, including several candidates running for president in 2020, like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris. Cory Booker, Governor Inslee, and Senator Gillibrand, a lot of people kind of hopping on that bandwagon. Barr has definitely been pushing back against that. And he said that he found since he has released the entire report with its redactions, he kind of sees these questions as unfounded, or um, I think he said bizarre was the word that he used. And so, again, I think it's just a really good example of how you're seeing the different sides interpret the exact same testimony. Let's talk about some of the other big highlights. Senator Kamala Harris, there was a line of questioning where she was asking him about his decision, saying that there was not enough evidence to establish that the president committed obstruction of justice. William Barr had admitted that he did not personally review all of the evidence in the report. That's another thing that led a lot of people to believe, well, then why did you clear him? I think it's important to note that even before this letter that was released, a lot of Democrats had criticized his four-page summary, especially after having seen the 400-page report with the redactions. They said there are a lot of discrepancies here. And of course, the key thing is how Robert Mueller did not make any assertions on whether the president obstructed justice, but did say that the report did not exonerate him, whereas Attorney General Barr said that they did not find evidence of obstruction justice. And that's the key thing here that everyone is really paying attention to. And I think it is going to continue to be the center of the chaos surrounding this report. William Barr told Chuck Grassley that if Mueller was not going to make a prosecutorial decision on this whole thing, then he should have hung it up at that point. He should have stopped the investigation then. Any other big highlights? I think when Barr took a moment to tell Senator Amy Klobuchar that the president's statements implying Michael Cohen's family members committed crimes in order to influence Cohen's testimony could not pass muster. That was something that a lot of Republicans were kind of looking toward because, of course, Michael Cohen is a figure that a lot of people on both sides have questions about. That was a big moment. I think that him saying that he did not exonerate, um, that was Barr's defense that he says he doesn't believe there was sufficient evidence to establish an obstructionist offense. I think that was a key moment, especially after even someone, like you said, Senator Chuck Grassley kind of jumped on this. One thing that a lot of people are criticizing Barr over is he did at one point categorize Robert Mueller's letter as, quote, a bit snitty and referenced that he thought it was probably written by a member of Robert Mueller's staff. That's something that a lot of Democrats criticize him for, especially because we've seen throughout this process, especially before the Mueller report was released, Republicans and Democrats both really saying that Robert Mueller let him do his job. He's a fine man of character. He knows what he's doing. He's well experienced. And so that categorization definitely didn't sit well with a lot of the senators. Yeah, the big fish is to get Robert Mueller to testify. I think uh, House Democrats have said that they might have tentatively set something for May, but there's no specific date yet. So we'll see if that uh, ever comes to be. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The attorney general spent more than five hours testifying before the Senate committee on Wednesday. He was supposed to show up Thursday for a House hearing, but chose not to do it. There was a congressman who threw a little bit of shade at the attorney general for not deciding to go. Representative Steve Cohen started by eating a bucket of KFC (laughs) at 9 a.m. while the lawmakers were waiting to see if Barr would show up. They already knew he wasn't. Then he left the bucket there along with a ceramic chicken on the table where Barr would have sat. At the end of the hearing, he walked out to the press and he called the attorney general Chicken Barr. Chicken Barr should have shown up today and answered questions. He was afraid of Barry Burke. He was afraid of Norm Eisen. 
a t- attorney general who is picked for his legal acumen and his abilities would not be fearful of any other attorneys questioning him for 30 minutes. To her part, Nancy Pelosi alleges that Attorney General Bill Barr lied to Congress and said no one is above the law, right. not the president and not the attorney general. Yeah, she said that he committed a crime and I mean, this is just going to keep on going. So we'll see what happens in the next uh, week in the crazy world of politics. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.